Go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 10. Glad everybody's having a good week so far. I think I've told you before, it always feels good to get to Wednesday night. Feels like when you get to Wednesday night, you know you're going to make it through the week, you know? It's all downhill from here. So, but Matthew chapter 10. When it, I think one of the remarkable things about God and about being a follower of Christ is God lets us, as his people, be a part of what he's doing. Don't you think that's pretty remarkable? His redemptive plan, we get to play a role in it. It's his plan. We don't get any of the glory. It's all his power. But when it comes to telling others about who Jesus is, when it comes to uh, discipleship, when it comes to um, helping others grow, that's God's work. That's the Holy Spirit's work. But we get to be a part of that. Throughout history, God is using people to accomplish his purposes. And that's a pretty remarkable thing. As a person, that should be what gives your life value like that should make you have just a real sense of purpose in this life the fact that if you're here and you're a follower of Christ God has a plan to use you your life has a purpose like you specifically God has okay joy I have this specific purpose this specific plan for your life or Zach God can say Zach I have this specific plan, this specific purpose for your life. That's remarkable. And as a young person, that should be something that gets you excited, that gets you comforted, because it's a scary thing to kind of look at the vast ocean of life before you and wonder, like, am I going to be able to do it? Am I going to be able to do what God's called me to do? Am I going to have any kind of purpose or meaning in life? And the answer is 100% yes. As a follower of Christ, you get to play a part in his kingdom and in his historical purposes. We see a picture of that tonight in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 is another shift in the gospel of Matthew. So Matthew kind of goes back and forth between giving us passes chapters really focused on narrative like telling us what Jesus and his apostles went and did and then he'll go from giving us the narrative to really focusing in on heavy teaching from Christ chapters 1 through 4 that's narrative chapters 1 through 4 is all about Jesus being born traveling around as a young person and um, ultimately being baptized and starting his earthly ministry. The chapters 5 to 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, just very deep, rich, um, concentrated teaching from Jesus. And then chapters 8 and 9 go back to narrative. Remember, Jesus is um, ministering throughout Capernaum. Now, chapter 10, we hit another substantial passage of Jesus' teaching and Matthew recording the teaching of Christ. And we ended chapter 9, when Alejandro taught last week, we ended with an actual prayer request 
from Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 9, 35 to 38, just what, to refresh us with what Alejandro taught last week. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Verse 35 is a really good recap of what Jesus was doing throughout Capernaum, what he's been really up to in chapters 8 and, eight, eight and 9. So I, I got four things here. Looking at verses, look at, looking at verse 35, what's one thing that it says Jesus and his companions were doing? One thing. We got, yeah, like two of them begin with T. Teaching. What else was he doing? Uh, going through all the cities. Traveling. Yeah. Uh, what else? Teaching. What specifically was he teaching? Gospel. Proclaiming the gospel. And there's a fourth thing that verse 35 tells us Jesus and his disciples were up to. What's, what's the end of verse 35? They were he he healing, people. healing people. So chapters 8 and 9, Matthew records for us Jesus and uh, traveling through Capernaum. And he's going from village to village, city to city, um, proclaiming the gospel, teaching people about the kingdom of God, healing diseases. Remember what Alejandro told us? What was the purpose behind the healing and the miracles? What was he doing? Yeah, he's validating his, his message. He was claiming to be the son of God. He was proclaiming the kingdom and he was doing things that only God can do. He was instantly healing people of their sickness. He was instantly calming seas. He was instantly controlling weather, um, casting out demons, things that only God can do in validating his message. As we ended chapter 9, we saw Jesus having compassion for the condition of the people. Verse 36, Jesus, it says that Jesus, seeing the people, felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, they're priests. The, he's talking about the people of Israel here. As, as he's traveling through Capernaum, he's traveling through the nation of Israel, and he's meeting people and he's seeing people. It makes Jesus sad. This is, these are supposed to be God's chosen people. This is God's chosen nation. Yet they're priests, their leaders, their religious institutions had all failed them. How's that possible? They had the revelation of God. They had God's word. They had God's covenant, his promises. Yet Jesus sees them and he's brokenhearted because they are like sheep without a shepherd. All their institutions 
had failed them. They needed to know the Messiah. They needed to know that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for, the one that they've been waiting to restore the nation of Israel, restore them to God, restore them to right relationship with God. It's Jesus. That's what they need to know. That's the key piece of information. They had their their religious leaders and their authorities had taken the word of God and the promises of God and perverted them, twisted them, distorted them into a system of self-righteousness, a system of man-made religion trying to earn their own way to God. And guess what? Trying to earn your way to God, self-righteousness is a recipe for failure 100% of the time. They needed the Messiah. They needed the one through whom their sins would be paid for. The sacrificial lamb, they needed their sins forgiven. The Messiah is here. The people need to know that. And that leads Jesus to the prayer request. Jesus said to the disciples, we, we share a um, prayer request in here all the time, right? It's a part of what we do as a church. Believers share with each other, hey, pray for this, pray for that, pray for me on this. Well, Jesus, he tells his fellow disciples, or his, not his fellow disciples, but his disciples, hey, I need y'all to pray for something. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. What he's saying is the harvest is the people. All these desperate people, they need to know the Messiah. And there's many of them. And Jesus is saying, hey, there's few that know the truth. Pray that God would send the few that know the truth into the masses of these people that need to know the Messiah to proclaim the gospel. And the answer to this prayer request begins to come together in the verses we're going to look at tonight. Tonight we're going to look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. The answer starts to come together in this passage because Jesus is going to call out of his disciples. Remember, he's got numerous people. Normally there's like thousands of people following Jesus around, hundreds of maybe following Jesus around. And there's people who have believed and have followed. There's disciples. What is a disciple? Who, do, who has a good definition of a disciple? Uh, like someone that follows a teacher? Yeah, it's a student of a teacher, like a dedicated student of a teacher that follows that teacher that is committed to learning from a teacher. Jesus had these people. Jesus had people around him already that believed his message and were following him as a disciple. Yet out of these people, these groups of people, he calls 12 particular ones that we know as the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. And in verses 1 to 4 tonight, we're going to look at this in three different uh, sections, but it's where he calls together these 12s. The first part we'll look at is the assembly or the assembling together of these 12, the assembly. He calls them together. The second thing we'll look at is the empowering that Jesus gives them. And the last part we'll look at is the roster, the roster of the 12, 
We're going to look at who these guys were. We're not going to study them in depth because what's interesting, we know a lot about a few of them. Most of them, we don't know a whole lot about, which in and of itself is kind of interesting. So we'll look over these. And it's it, there. there's a few different aspects of looking at these 12 men that really is very unusual, not what you would, would expect. And again, I think very interesting. So let's read our verses, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. And then verse five, we won't get into it, but these 12, Jesus sent out after instructing them. So that's really what we're about to launch into. I told you this is one of the sections where Matthew gets heavy into the teachings of Jesus. Not so much what Jesus was walking around and doing, but heavy into the teaching. Just like, remember, the Sermon on the Mount. Three full chapters, five, six, and seven, where it is just heavy teaching. That's what we're about to launch into again. But this is kind of the launching point. Jesus is going to be teaching these 12 apostles, getting them ready to go out and be ministers of the gospel. And we'll learn a lot from what he teaches them. Some things apply absolutely directly to our lives, some things more indirectly, but we'll learn a lot even about our own ministries um, from seeing how Jesus instructs these 12. And that's what we'll get into the next uh, few lessons in Matthew. But tonight we're looking specifically at Jesus calling these men together. So the first thing, the assembly. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples, the ones who would become known as apostles. Defining apostles can be a little bit tricky. There's some things in the Bible that it's really easy to define. You know, the Bible says, hey, uh, think about like an elder in the church. The Bible gives very clear, like, they should be able to teach. They should be um, faithful to one wife. They should, it gives us not um, alcoholics or not addicted to um, much wine. Like it gives these very specific definitions and qualifications. But there's not really a portion of the Bible that says, okay, an apostle meets these qualifications. Now, one of the, what would you think would be one of the key reasons why we have such very clear instructions and qualifications and clear definition of uh, elder and a deacon and not apostle? Because elders and deacons, um, they're, they're for all the churches. And apostles, not so much. Exactly right. That's exactly right. So the church today, we still have men that we choose to be elders and deacons in the church. We have to know what are the qualifications that God wants from these men. How do we identify these men and what standards do we hold them to? What should they be doing? But apostles, the apostles ended with the New Testament. 
The apostles ended uh, almost, well, John lived the longest, but most of them within 30 years of the death of Christ, they all died. So generally speaking, we'll look at Acts chapter 1, verses 21 to 26, because if we had a list, which we don't really, but if we did have a list in the New Testament of how do you choose an apostle, well, it's the only time that an apostle is chosen outside of Jesus choosing them here. So uh, it's the closest we get. But you, you kind of see three common things. First of all, they were specifically chosen and commissioned by Christ. The, the only three times that you have apostles chosen in the New Testament, God, Jesus is directly involved. So you get this right here. Here's example number one. Jesus calls these 12. The second example, let's see who knows these. These are kind of challenging. What, what's one more example you can think of of Christ himself saying, you, you're going to be an apostle. Come on. Uh, Alex? Ben? No, come on. Where's? Well, let me see the hair. Hey, guys, you got to keep the hair distinct. That's how I tell the difference here. It's starting to get a little bit matched up again. All right, go ahead. Matt? Oh, okay, okay, no. All right, good point. Okay, no, he got me. He got me. Okay, these 12 here, outside of these 12 listed here, what are two other instances in the Bible, people not listed here, where Jesus calls? All right, let's... Is it Barnabas? It's where they picked the apostle to replace, uh, to replace Judas. And yeah, Matthias. Matthias. Chapter Acts chapter one, where I told you to turn. Yes. So there's this. So you got the 12 here. Jesus chooses them. And then you have Acts, which is where God chooses by lot. Right. Like they're like, hey, God, we need to replace the Judas here. Help us choose. All right. Last one. Paul. Paul, that's right. Jesus shows up. Paul's walking on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter nine. And Jesus shows up and says, hey, Paul. Why are you persecuting me? Like, hey, you're mine now. <laughs> um, and, and calls Paul to apostleship. So they're specifically called, commissioned directly by Christ, by God. They see the resurrected Christ. So we're going to see that with Matthias here in Acts chapter 1. When they say, you know, we need to replace Judas, what are some of the qualifications? One of the qualifications was it was somebody who had to have walked and seen, walked with Christ, and seen the risen Christ. And then generally, we don't have exact record of this happening with every single apostle, but we have it happening with many, Peter, Paul, uh, my mind's going blank, but we have it happening with, with others. The, um, their message attested by miracles. So look at Acts chapter 1. We'll, we'll mention Judas at the end here at the, when we look at verse 4. But remember, Judas betrays Christ, ends up, instead of being repentant, um, commits suicide. I mean, do you think if Judas would have repented, there would have been forgiveness there? Absolutely, right? I mean, it, Peter denied Christ. Sure, he didn't turn him over to the soldiers, but he denied Christ. He repented. There's forgiveness. Judas, though, commits suicide. And as the 12th apostle, he needs to be replaced. 
And so looking at Acts 1, 21 to 26, this is how the 11 remaining apostles were to figure out who the replacement for Judas would be. Acts chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, this is the apostles all talking together, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Bersabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So that's about as close as we get to getting a list of what qualified these men to be apostles. But essentially, it was they were appointed directly by Christ. Um, so that's the assembly. That's, that's the first part we see here. You got the crowds. Within the crowds, you've got disciples. You've got people who are following Christ. Yet within these tr- crowds, he calls these 12 specific men to him. And what's interesting is we're going to see that there's even tighter circles within this 12. There's three particular ones we'll see that are even closer to Christ than the rest. And then one, especially, that Jesus loved. So you have part one, the assembly. Part two, the empowering. Remember, Jesus has been exercising his authority over everything. Creation, nature, disease, sickness, uh, demons, everything. Now we see him empowering his apostles. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. All authority and power is God's. You can do nothing of your own power. Were any of these men powerful in and of themselves? Did any of them have the innate ability, the gifting to just go perform miracles? Not at all. They had no power to do any of these things until Jesus chose to give it to them. Even Jesus being able to give others the ability to do these things is a testimony to his divinity. Only God has the power to give that kind of power. It's important to remember because with most things in life, when we see people be successful or somebody achieve a lot, one of the things we often talk about is just, hey, they got natural talent. I mean, we talk about it at work all the time, like, oh, this, this kid's just got some raw natural talent. Like, he's just got it. He's got this innate ability. We talk about it in athletics, right? Like, oh, man, he's just a natural athlete. It's just where our human mind goes when we think of um, 
people achieving great things. But when it comes to the apostles, no. (laughs) There was no natural talent with these men. Jesus didn't choose them because they were great. Jesus didn't choose them because they were powerful. Jesus chose them and made them powerful. Jesus chose them and whatever great was accomplished by them was accomplished through them by Jesus Christ. And recognize that's the exact same thing that's going to happen in your life. I told you a second ago that if you're in Christ, your life has a great purpose. Your life has great meaning. You're going to serve God's kingdom. You're going to do things, accomplish things. But is that because you're just so gifted and talented? You're just such a smart kid? Such a, or like, you're just so wise? No. It's because that's the power of God working in you. It's the, the, the exact same thing. Now, why did Jesus, God, give them these powers? Why did he do that? It's the same answer, right? It's the exact same answer that, uh, that um, the reason, you're right, the reason Jesus performed miracles It was a validation of his message and his ministry. And now that these men are going to become the vehicles of his revelation, he's giving them the ability to perform miracles for the validation of the message. The the exact same reason. Now, here's something else interesting. So Jesus gave... The, this power to the apostles. Did the apostles give this power to others? No. Like, Paul doesn't go around like, hey, guess what? You want to go heal people now? Go. Like, oh, hey, you want to go cast out demons? Here's the ability to do that. No. It, the power was God's alone to give. It's also worth noting that he didn't give them training, right? I mean, certainly Jesus teaches them. I think a lot of times, in fact, I would say all the time, and not a lot of times, all the time, Jesus is teaching them is largely, in addition, an effort to teach us who read the words today. But like Jesus didn't give them medical training. Jesus didn't say, hey, you know, you come across somebody, they got a bum leg. You need to come up, rub your hands together real, get them going real hot, and then you kind of work it. No, Jesus didn't give them mer- or uh, some kind of medical training. He gave them the same power to perform miracles that he had. So that's why when you go through Acts and you read about the um, miraculous ministry of Peter or Paul, it was the same nature of miracles that we saw Christ doing, where they speak. And things are instantly happening. They speak and people are instantly healed. The, uh, people wanted to just, they were just, my mind's going blank. It's not in my notes. So I forget Peter or Paul, one of them, people are like, hey, I just got to let their shadow go across me. Peter, all right. The cloth, right? Yeah. Like they're like, I just got to 
touch the hem of his cloak like Jesus, or I just got to let his shadow go across me. Um, we are talking about a divine, miraculous power here. So we have the assembly. We have the empowering. Let's look at the roster. Who were these 12 men? Let's just read them again and talk through them. Philip, or, uh, the names of the 12 in verse 2. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Now, why 12? Why 12? I really have no idea, so I can't wait to hear what Fletcher has to say. Um, because of the 12 tribes of Israel? Okay, yes. Because, but why 12 tribes? Like, I don't, why, why this number 12? Because it's his favorite number. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. For some reason, God likes this number 12. I'm sure there's a reason there. And I'm sure, what? what? 12 months of the year. 12 months of the year. Maybe he just likes it. Maybe. Just like how he likes circles. Yeah, hey, you know. And I'm not one to question it. If we want 12 tribes, we can have 12 tribes. If uh, Jacob has 12 sons, 12 sons, you know. And But yes, there's something about this number 12. It's uh, 12 sons of Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel. Um, there's 12 elders, thrones in Revelation, 12 apostles. In fact, the number 12 is so important. When Judas dies, are they like, eh, I guess it's 11 now? No, like they replace him, right? In Acts 1, you're like, hey, we need to, we need to get that number back up to 12. So, so I don't know why 12, but there you go. There is 12. The listing of the names is also important. The listing of the names, we have it here in Matthew. Mark lists them out. Luke lists them out. So the, the listing is important. And even the order is important. Who always comes first? Simon Peter. Simon Peter, Simon Peter always comes first. And then you got uh, John and James, the brothers, usually towards the top of the list. Judas, where's he coming? The last. Last, right? Like, yeah. Exactly. So the order is also important. The first one listed is always, as it says here, Simon, who is called Peter. Simon was Peter or Peter, Simon, Simon, Peter was a fisherman called with his brother, Andrew, the second one in the list there. Now, when and why was he given the name Peter? Uh. When Jesus told him that he was going to be the rock of the church. Close, but important nuance there. So Matthew 16, 18, um, Jesus is like, hey, guys, who does everybody say I am? And they're like, you know, some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist has come back up from dead. And Jesus is like, who do you say I am? You know, and Peter says, um, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, hey. You are blessed because you didn't figure this out on your own. This isn't flesh or blood that revealed this to you, but this is what you have learned from the Father.
Father. And on this rock, but not Peter necessarily. It's not Peter that the church is going to be built upon, but it's upon this confession of Jesus as the Messiah, upon that rock, this rock, Jesus is the Messiah, Christ will build his church. But because of the confession coming from Peter there, uh, Petros means rock in Greek, bedrock. Because the confession of Jesus' Christ that Peter gave was the bedrock that the church would be built upon, Simon was given the nickname by Jesus, Peter, Petros. And it become became, I mean, you know, if Jesus gives you a nickname, you're going to roll with that your whole life. You know, forget Brandon, I'm going with whatever Jesus told me. Like, you can't really get a better person to be giving out nicknames than the Son of God, right? So that's kind of what Peter, even here, like, the begin, by the time, Matthew doesn't tell us how Simon got the name Peter until chapter 16, but as Matthew is writing in his historical context, that's just already how Simon's known. So that's why he says here, Simon, who is called Peter. But you do got to be careful with that wording in Matthew 16, 18, because who does the Catholic Church believe was the first pope? Peter, right? And they believe like the whole, uh, their whole theology built around the pope comes from this idea, not that it was the faith in Jesus as the Messiah that the church would be built upon, but actually Peter himself as the Pope. And they invest all this unbiblical, dangerous authority in the Pope because of that. But Peter clearly rose to preeminence. He clearly becomes the leader among the 12 apostles. And it's a beautiful picture of grace because was G- or was Peter's life perfect? Was his ministry perfect? Far from. Far from. And yeah, remember, uh, he was the one who was always like gun-ho and overly ambitious and talking himself into trouble. And Jesus, I'll never deny you. Okay, well, then you deny him three times like the next day. But he repents. Or how about, like, who's the one who's quick to cut, bring up the sword and cut off the guard's ear? It's Peter. And Jesus is like, Peter, put your sword away, you know? Or um, who's the one who, you know, thinks like, oh, I'm going to tell Jesus he doesn't need to go die on the cross. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Or even in Galatians chapter 2, who's the one that Paul has to rebuke because all of a sudden this church leader has become hypocritical in regards to Judaism and Gentiles in the church, and he's showing favoritism towards the Jews in the church. Who's the leader that Peter or Paul has to rebuke? Peter, right? So it's a Peter's ministry is an incredible picture of grace, a reminder to us that the only one perfect is Christ. We strive and we give him our best, but when we fall short, which we inevitably will, we follow the example of Peter in repentance and faith and getting back up and going back to serving Christ. Uh, God doesn't use perfect people. He uses people who are faithful, who are willing to repent, 
confess when they must make a mistake, yet focus back on serving him faithfully. And so he very much rises to preeminence. First, second Peter, very great books that you're studying right now, written by this man. Um, Acts, the kind of the history or the history book on the founding of the church. First 10 chapters are heavily focused on Peter's ministry. Mark, the gospel of Mark, has Mark's name, but Mark was not an apostle. And remember, all the New Testament books trace back to Jesus and the apostles uh, in terms of authorship. So Mark was written by a guy named Mark from Rome under the direction of Peter. It's kind of like Peter's memoir, memoir of the ministry of Christ written by Mark, like Peter dictated it for him. So um, uh, Peter is first in these lists because of his preeminent position among the apostles. Andrew, his brother, um, we don't know or hear as much about Andrew, but Andrew, his brother. I'm going to say something about that, though. We're going to go through a lot of these names, and I don't have much to say about them because we don't hear much about them. But does that make them insignificant or unimportant? No. We'll talk about it again, but it's, again, another picture for us and reminder that for our life to have meaning for God's kingdom doesn't mean everybody has to know our name. It doesn't mean that we're the ones who are always in front that everybody's looking at. Sometimes we operate behind the scenes. We serve God's kingdom behind the scenes. Um, now, two more fishermen. So the first two in the list, Peter and Andrew, his brother. Now we got two more fishermen, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Um, remember, Andrew, Peter, James, John, the fishermen, they were called in Matthew chapter 4. That's where we saw Jesus. He, he finds them working their family business of fishing. And Jesus says, hey, come follow me. I want to make you fishers of men. And they drop everything to go follow Christ. But it, it, it's uh, kind of remarkable that the um, first four individuals in this, let, or this list are fishermen. And three of the four, uh, Peter, James, and John, become really the inner circle of apostles, the apostles, the disciples who had the closest relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you're setting out to change not just the world, but all of history, like the history of the universe, you're setting out to change it. Who are you choosing? I don't know, I'm going to go find some, like, the smartest guys I can find, some PhDs, maybe, like, some people high up in, like, politics, people with a lot of influence or a lot of money. That's how my mind works, right? I mean, after all, I'm setting out to change the course of this universe. I'm going to need some heavy hitters, right? No. Jesus goes, first four guys on the list, fishermen. We'll get back to that, too. A little bit more on James and John. So James, we don't really hear much about. Now, the don't mix up James and the apostles with the author of the book of James. 
the author of the book of James was Jesus' half-brother. Um, so uh, that's uh, not a James that we have in the list here. We don't really hear much else about uh, James. Now, John, on the other hand, John is the one who is closest to Christ. He's like the closest of the 12. Um, even among the inner circle, the three, John was the closest. John, he wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Those letters were all written by him. And then Revelation also. So we, John is somebody we get to know a lot about throughout the New Testament. James, not so much. Same would go for Philip, Bartholomew. Now, Thomas, he kind of became famous for what? Doubting, right? Doubting Thomas, which, you know, I think he kind of got a bum rap. I mean, he was just like, to me, trying to be reasonable, like, hey, guys, I got to see this. before, You know, like, so Thomas, we hear a little bit more about. But really, when you think of James, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, how much do you know about them? Not a lot, right? Again, the reminder for us that, um, is my phone going off? Yeah, got to be more responsible. But uh, no, reminder for us that serving God's kingdom doesn't always mean that you are front and center in the public view. And that is perfectly fine. What matters is you're serving. What matters is Wherever God's given you to serve in the church, you're doing that faithfully and passionately with all your heart. Now, whether that gets you in front of a bunch of people or that gets you in front of nobody, who cares? Because the one you're serving is God. He's the one you're, you're loving. He's the one you're glorifying. And when it comes to eternal rewards, hey, I don't know where Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, James all stacked up in rank, but I guarantee you they're not disappointed, right? Like when it comes to their rewards, their rewards are eternal in heaven. Now, uh, um, I was hearing some of the professor Businich from uh, Master Seminary, and he said that there's some record is not accurate, and they can't really tell, but for Bartholomew, that he was one of the founders of the churches in Armenia. Ah. And Thomas was one of the first ones to take the gospel to India. That's He says it in his classes, he says, don't quote me on this. It's not like it's, yeah. but there's some historical uh, documents here that say it. So. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. And the point Alejandro's making is really good. Like for a lot of these guys, like he was just saying, um, there's some historical indication of what they went on to do. It's hard to reconstruct it all because, like, you know, history, you, can, you get limited in your resources and what's available to you. Um, but, yeah, I'm not, like, I'm not that smart, so I don't know all the, like, the, may, like, what they might have done kind of stuff. So, but that's a great point. You said that all of, like, all of the New Testament books are from, like, uh, interested in the apostles, right? Mm-hmm. So, do, you, do we have any idea um, who Hebrews was wrote by? Like, no. The- yeah, Hebrews is a weird, weird one in that way. Like, um, we really don't know who Hebrews was written by. And pretty much, I would say most of 
the New Testament authors, be it Luke, Paul, Peter, there's some scholar out there that's written a book absolutely convinced that they're the ones that wrote it. So, like, I guarantee I, there, David Allen, you can go pick up his book and he'll just promise you that, um, that Luke wrote Hebrews and he's got a whole argument for it. But there's the same for Paul and Peter, too. Um. Well, this isn't my question, but maybe it was someone who we wouldn't have expected to write it, and that's why we don't know. But who wrote Revelation? John. Okay. Yeah. John wrote Revelation. Yeah, but Hebrews, you know, the, it's interesting anytime you study the history of how God put together his word, but Hebrews had such an early place in the apostolic churches and in the first century churches in such a prominent place as scripture in the churches that it was not really ever contested despite the fact that um, it is like the only New Testament book where we're not sure on authorship. So it's an interesting one for sure. Um, Matthew we'd know more about because remember back to chapter, um, let's see, was it? I'm chapter was it chapter eight where he got called or chap there you go Matthew chapter nine that's where Matthew gets called Matthew's obviously the author of the gospel of Matthew and so we do know a little bit more about him um, now James the son of Alphaeus another one we're not told uh, anything else about other than they call him the son of Alphaeus so that we don't get him confused with James, the brother of John, who was earlier on in the list, Thaddeus, and then Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. Um, so what's a, the Zealot? The Zealots were a group. Remember that the Jews, the nation of Israel was occupied by Rome at the, uh, during the first century. And they really hated it, which you can imagine. That makes sense. I mean, like, think about it. Imagine if, like, as the United States, another country like Canada, I know it's laughable, but pretend Canada got strong all of a sudden and, like, they could come dominate us and just occupy us. And so we were still the United States. We were still our own country. But you had to pay taxes to Canada. You had to follow whatever rules Canada imposed upon you. Which their vaccination rules are like way crazier than ours. So you can just imagine, right? Like, like it would be uh, something that we would hate a lot. Well, the Jews hated it. And the Zealots were kind of the, a radical group of Jews that were always looking to assassinate Roman officials, assassinate Roman soldiers. Uh, kind of like, think about the insurgency that American troops always had to deal with in overseas, like in the Middle East and stuff. They were kind of the insurgents that the Roman army always had to deal with throughout Israel. So just stop there. That gets us up to Judas. Look at this first 11. It's a pretty interesting mix of people. It's a pretty interesting mix of people. You've got uh, Bartholomew and Thaddeus who um, have named Philip, 
who have names that are probably Greek. So perhaps they're not even Jews. The group is mostly Jews for sure. You've got a lot of fishermen. You've got a tax collector. How well do you think on a human level, Matthew as a tax collector got along with James, John, Andrew, and Peter, the Jewish... I mean, no. Matthew's one who's siphoning off money from these other guys, getting wealthy by it, and sending it off to the Romans. Then you throw a zealot in the mix who's like even more extreme. So you've got like, this would be like the equivalent today of like getting together like um, Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, like people from all different walks of society. And wait a second, that's actually like exactly what the church is, right? Like the church is a harmony of people who come from diverse backgrounds, from different political views, from different social classes, economic classes, yet we come together for the common purpose of serving the kingdom of God. It's what you see with these 12 men who make up the apostles, a very diverse group. And on a human level, it makes no sense at all that you would ever try to get these guys to work together. They would have, they should have hated each other. On a worldly level, they had conflicting priorities, conflicting viewpoints. Yet the gospel changed everything. It completely reoriented their lives and their purposes to where whatever earthly affiliations they had, those things became meaningless in light of the eternal kingdom of God. The kingdom of God became their new passion, not the nation of Israel, not their occupation, not Rome, but God's kingdom. You're also reminded that it's not many wise or powerful that are called. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, where Paul says this exactly. Paul talks a lot in 1 Corinthians about the conflict between worldly wisdom and the truth of God. And he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The point that Paul makes there in 1 Corinthians is exactly what we see illustrated by the 12 apostles. God uses the weak things of the world so that when he accomplishes great things for his kingdom through the weak things of the world, all the glory goes to him. Again, that's the same thing that's going to happen in your life, okay? When God, he's going to use you in ways that you're weak. You can't do it on your own. God doesn't want you to do it on your own. 
Because he wants you and the people around you to know this is the power of God. This is nothing but the grace, the goodness of God. And all glory goes to him. It's not because we are wise or powerful. It's a really interesting group that Jesus assembles here. Last, we have Judas. Judas, the one who would betray Christ. Now, was Judas... Did God make a mistake? Like, did Jesus make a mistake here? No, he chose him on purpose because he knew he was going to die. And that was the man who was going to hand him over to the people who would kill him. Yeah, you know... The, he, God doesn't make mistakes. In fact, we see before Judas betrays him, the Gospels record for us, Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him. Judas did not act outside of God's will. Now, it's important to always keep very clear in your mind, God did not cause Judas to sin. Judas sinned of his own nature. Judas had a sinful nature, just like all of unredeemed humanity does. And Judas acted out of his nature. But here's what's remarkable about the wisdom, power, omniscience of God. God is so powerful and wise that he uses even the sinfulness of man, without ever being the source or the cause of it, he still uses it for his purposes. Did Judas, despite acting sinfully against God, was Judas used by God to accomplish redemptive purposes? Absolutely. The betrayal of Christ to the cross The cross is the centerpiece of redemptive history. The the death and resurrection of Christ is the centerpiece of redemptive history. It's a remarkable, remarkable thing. And another reminder to us in our own lives, sin, sin is never a good thing. Sin is never something that pleases God. Sin is never something that we should be okay with. But when sin happens to you, when sin happens around you, don't be in despair. Recognize that God is even sovereign in those circumstances and has numerous times throughout history, throughout biblical history, and most prominently in the death and resurrection of his son. God has used sin for his own purposes. And then when you sin, recognize that Through repentance, you can be right with God. Through faith in Christ, you can be right with God. And even the sin that is in your life, sure, there's going to be consequences. Sin is never a good thing. It's always something to be taken extremely serious. But by the grace of God, he redeems you and still uses you despite your sinfulness for his purposes. It's an interesting four verses here because it's not, when we get into 
the rest of chapter 10, it's like going back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is just straight teaching you, you know? Like, here's this, here's this, learn this, pray this way. So many just direct, rich teachings. Here, it's something we kind of just observe, right? We're kind of just getting to observe what Jesus did in calling his 12. But I think there's a lot to learn from it. I think there's a lot to learn. And I'm just going to rehash them because we kind of already went over them. But number one, look who he called. It wasn't the mighty and the wise according to this world. But it was men who were going to be faithful to him that he could use. It's the same in your life. Like if you think you are mighty and strong, go back and read like what is it? James like 1, 9, and 10. Like, hey, if you think you're mighty and strong, you better glory in your humility because like flower and grass, you're going to fade away. Look, God uses the humble. Be okay with being weak and humble before God so that you can be used by him for his purposes. The diversity here, the fishermen, the normal guys, the tax collectors, the zealots, like when it comes to the church, leave worldly divisions out of it, all right? Like your loyalties to this world are nothing compared to your loyalties to the kingdom of God as a citizen of his kingdom. Jesus couldn't have pulled together a more diverse group of men to be his apostles. These aren't fringe disciples. These aren't people that just passed them on the highway. These are the the apostles. Love each other. Love the diversity that God uses within the church. I think the third one be be willing to serve in quietness. You know, maybe you're like the Simon Peter. I mean, Dusty, somebody's got to be a pastor, Dusty, right? Like, we need somebody to stand up there on Sunday morning. Somebody's got to do it. But, like, Pastor Dusty's not the only one serving on Sunday mornings or throughout the week of the church life. Like, there are a lot of people serving um, behind the scenes that aren't at at front and center. Be okay with that. Be okay with that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for just how you demonstrate your power in the church, how gracious you are to allow us to be a part of it. And we just pray that you'd help us to to love your redemptive work that you're doing throughout world history, through the church, and that by your grace, we get to be a part of it. I pray that you would not let us take that for granted or take it lightly, but that it would motivate us, energize us, and impact us every day of our lives. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brandon.